0: here Uh, glad that you're with us if you're joining us online um, we are really glad that you're doing that as well Uh, if you're new with us my name is Jeff if I haven't met you I'm the pastor here and it's an uh, I I don't say this very much but it is an honor to kind of get to do this every week as part of what God has called me to do in this season of my life and so I'm really happy to be uh, doing that. Uh, and um, just want to let you know, next week Trish is going to be taking this time because I'll be with family in Florida. Uh, so you can be praying for us later today as we head out on the road. It's about 15 hours, and I have a eight year old and a two year old. So you can be praying for that. Uh, we don't do all 15 hours at once, though. So, but they're pretty good travelers. I just say that for your um, your cheap applause. Uh, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and go ahead and open your Bible up to Acts chapter 20. Uh, We're actually going to pick right where we left off last week. Uh, We're actually going to start in verse 13, though. And uh, I want to read the whole text um, before we get started, and then we'll jump in. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 20, verse 13, uh, to the end of chapter 20, and then I'll kind of dig in here. Here's what it says. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came uh, the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost." Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city of imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. <clears throat> And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, this part of this book that we can uh, study together and see the calling that you might have for each of us. Uh, And and Lord, I pray that we would be um, characterized, that our character would come from Uh, Father, the good news of your Son who died for us in our place and who is now seated at your right hand. And we pray that you illuminate to our eyes what you have for each of us today, uh, both individually but also together as a church family. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so at the end of our passage last week, if you remember, if you were here, if you weren't here... Uh, you can go and listen to the sermons uh, on Spotify and Apple and all the places you can do that, uh, and on YouTube as well. But um, Paul, last week, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, maybe you remember, brought a basically a sleepy teenager back to life uh, because he fell asleep in a window opening and fell out of the third-story window to his death. And Paul went down and was like, oh, no big deal. He's alive. And then he was resurrected from the dead like it was nothing. Uh, And that's what happened last week. But that wasn't actually the main point last week. Last week, we talked about the importance of encouragement and how big of a deal it is to be encouraging one another. And to be fair, it wasn't entirely the young man's fault for falling asleep. Paul did preach all night, literally. Uh, And so... Um, The the scriptures tell us at the end of our text last week that after the all-night preaching and uh, breaking of bread together session, uh, they left greatly comforted and encouraged, no doubt in large part because of the resurrection from the dead they just saw uh, with Eutychus, Uh, but it was time for Paul and the crew that was with him, and if you want to read those names... I'm not going to do it aloud because they're hard to pronounce. You can go back and do that uh, in Acts chapter 20. But we're picking it up again in Acts 20, uh, and we started in verse 13. And so what we see there in that first chunk of Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 13 for today, is that the Apostle Paul has now finally embarked on this long-anticipated trip to return to Jerusalem. Uh, He's wanted to do this in the text leading up to this, and now he's going to do it. And so uh, we know that, based on time and letters and some study, that several decades have probably passed since he has last been in Jerusalem. So he wants to be home with kind of the mother church uh, for the celebration of Pentecost. Uh, And so he's a passenger of a ship that's slowly making its way down the Aegean Sea toward the Mediterranean Sea. And if you're like, I don't know the names of any of these places, um, part of that's because we're Americans, most of us here, and we don't know geography that well. But the other part of that, all the international people were like, yeah, somebody finally said it. (laughs) Um, But the other part of that is, A lot of these names are different now, so if you have a good Bible, uh, you can flip to the back of your Bible, and most of them will have a map, and some of them will have Paul's missionary journeys, and you can follow along with uh, this journey that he's on. And so he's heading down the Aegean Sea toward the Mediterranean Sea, and his ship is stopping at various centers of trade. Uh, That's what happened then. That's what happens now. Uh, They just go a little bit longer in between. And so as the Lord would have it, the ship that Paul is on stops in a place called Miletus for a few days, uh, which is very close to the city of Ephesus. Uh, Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, there's a book, an epistle, a letter called the letter to the Ephesians. That's from that city, the city of Ephesus. And so Paul doesn't plan on the delay, but Paul does make the most of it. Uh, He sends word to the Ephesian elders, the Christian leaders of the church in Ephesus. We actually talked about changing plans on Friday night for those of you who were there. And we talked about how sometimes plans just change and how do you roll with it in a way that brings glory to God. And here we see Paul doing just that. And so Paul is essentially going to give a farewell address to the elders at Ephesus knowing that they're going to go and take that word back to the church. Uh, And so uh, the book of Acts, if you haven't noticed, is filled with all kinds of speeches. Uh, There's a lot of speeches in Acts, right? There's sermons, there's defenses, there's addresses to non-Christians. But this speech is a little different for Paul. And the reason it's different for Paul is that he knows, as we read, that he is never going to see their faces again. And he is sad about that. And so this takes us back to last week's idea, again, of encouragement for others being such an important outflow of the love that we have for Jesus, which then leads us to have a love for one another if we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so despite Paul's hurry, right, he wants to get there at a specific time, so he's kind of in a hurry. He still makes time to invest in the elders at Ephesus, which again demonstrates his care Uh, for the Ephesian leaders, yes, but also for the entire church at Ephesus. Uh, And through the gift of inspiration, it shows his care for all churches over all time because we get to read about this. And so there in verse 17, we see that from Miletus, Paul gives them this really kind of a powerful charge. He speaks to the elders as one leader to another. Uh, We have it in summary form, and he begins with an example from his own life. That's what Paul uh, talks to them about, and it's in this text that we're going to see what we're going to think of as gospel characters show up In Paul's life and ministry, that there is a kind of a person that you become when you follow Jesus uh, in the way that Jesus invites us to and in the way that evidently Paul has done. And so this isn't Paul doing good deeds for the sake of good deeds, right? Paul's gospel character is flowing out of what? Out of his love for Jesus and therefore through that out of his love for his brothers and sisters in Jesus. So if you're not familiar with church and you're like, why do people call each other brother and sister in the church? It's because of this. We believe that through the blood of Jesus, we've been adopted into God's family. And now we have heavenly siblings, if you will. Uh, And so when we talk about brothers and sisters in Christ or in Jesus, what we mean is others who follow Jesus just like we do, that we have been adopted into a family together. Now it's important to know before we dive into this text this is always important the order salutis is the technical term for this but the order of how salvation works is really important. We know that it's not our character and hear me I don't care how long you've been coming to church you need to hear this again too and I know this is true because the entire New Testament is this message it is not your character or your behavior that saves you. You brought nothing to salvation except the sin that made it necessary right you have nothing to boast in but the cross it's trusting in the work of jesus that actually saves us jesus does the work jesus accomplishes the salvation it's trusting in him through the gift of faith that actually saves but we do know that the gospel impacts every area of our lives It's not just belief. The gospel is not just intellectual. The gospel affects every area of how we live our lives, including, and maybe foremost, our character. Jesus is not interested in modifying your behavior. He is interested in transforming you so that you become the kind of person who behaves in a way that looks like the fruit of the Spirit. We can't get those mixed up, or we have legalism. Right? So Paul offers more than words. He offers his life, and which is illustrating his teaching, right? which is the way of Jesus. Verse 18, when they came to him, the elders from Ephesus that he called, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Right? What's he saying? You guys know me. You know what I'm about. He lived among the people of Ephesus. And so therefore he's able to identify with them. And because of this, he's able to know their needs and how to apply God's word to those needs. So this is a challenge for those of us who lead in the church or who aspire to lead in the church. Are we with the people we are leading at or that we are looking to lead? Do we view people that we lead as equals with us? Right, Because it's a good reminder for those of us that are elders and pastors and leaders in the church. We're members too. We're just regular people. And Paul continues in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So in case it wasn't already clear, Paul wants to make sure that these leaders know that his ministry was definitely not about him getting claim. It was ultimately about serving the Lord. And he says he did so with humility and tears and in the midst of trials. I was with it. I was with you guys in the middle of it. Right? That's what he's saying. I didn't abandon you. I didn't leave you. I stayed with you in the middle of the difficulties. And this is the kind of service to God that's a direct result of a right understanding, but also a right application and a right feeling of the gospel of Jesus in the life of God of a Christian. In the theology world, we talk a lot about orthodoxy, which is right belief. And we talk sometimes about orthopraxy, which is right um, practice. But oftentimes, we don't talk enough about the right feeling that God transforms our heart to want what we should want. And that's what Paul is saying, I I loved you so much, I was so transformed by the gospel that I was willing to stay with you in the middle of really... I, I mean, I could have run away. They were trying to kill me. But you yourselves know how I stayed there through tears and trials. And see, the gospel, when applied deeply, it humbles us, it makes us tender, but also, as we're about to see, it also makes us courageous. Look at verse 20. You yourselves know how... 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Now, the way he phrases this gives us the impression that it was a temptation for him to shrink back from those things. I don't want to quite say it that way because eh, people are going to be upset. He said, I didn't shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable, teaching you not just house to house in private, but I said these things in public. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I told everybody the same thing. So he doesn't shy away from preaching the gospel. This is an incredible example for us in an age of tolerance, right? That is an age that we live in. Just keep doing and saying what is right without apology. That's the example here. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul is doing. That's what we are called to do. Paul doesn't just simply cave to any sort of pressure to change the gospel, but hear me, in any direction. He doesn't change the gospel in any direction. So we don't give in to the winds of the age we find ourselves in and compromise on the issues of our day. But we also don't give in to some sort of reactionary pressure to overreact against those things and throw away the reality of the gospel either. Right? When you're quote unquote defending uh, the gospel or defending what's right, you still have the fruit of the spirit you're supposed to operate in. And so while some folks might say, well, morality's out the window, do whatever you want, there are other folks who, in the name of defending that morality, have lost their own morality and their own kindness and have become mean about it. Paul wouldn't compromise to either one of those. And I see both things happening in the church at large. Neither one is good or right. And Paul is saying that the example he tried to set was simply that he, I love this, he just kept doing and saying the next right thing thing without compromise he just gave them the gospel and so let me just tell you what this means on the ground in Ephesus this means at some point we have to believe that Paul said something that at the very least annoyed someone in the church at Ephesus anybody who's led in any capacity in the church knows that this is true When he said, you know how I didn't shy away from declaring the gospel to you. Guaranteed, Paul and some of the elders that were sitting there had some moment of disagreement pop up into their head. That Paul had to bring the gospel to bear on them. And that they had to bring to bear on Paul. Like, just because he's an apostle doesn't mean he's sinless. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. So when he was in Ephesus, they were holding him accountable too. That's how this works. I think it's so important for us to remember that the expectation we have of the church family is not that we are always in some kind of fake, surface-level, lovey-dovey harmony with one another that never goes past skin deep. But instead, our expectation should be that despite how it might push up against us and frustrate us, we are committed to the gospel of Jesus no matter what. And so, this is, listen, church is not a social club. It's re- there are better social clubs. I'm telling you, there's cool stuff you could be doing on a Sunday morning. That's not what we're doing here. This is a family that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. That's what this is, and that's what this gathering represents. The fact that we gather together itself represents God gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under the power of the gospel to himself. And so Paul wants to make sure that when he is gone from them, they never forget this singular reality. They never forget it. And what we know from the rest of the scriptures is that they do. Read Revelation. This church, we know so much about this church in the scriptures read ephesians and read the book of revelation and you'll see how easy it is to slip paul continues though in verse 22 and now behold i am going to jerusalem constrained by the spirit compelled by the spirit not knowing what will happen to me there except here's what i do know i don't know what's going to happen but here's what i do know The Holy Spirit is telling me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Jerusalem is no exception. That's what he's saying. 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. That's gospel character. I don't think less of myself. I think of myself less. I don't count my life as that important except that I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You want to find fulfillment? What did Jesus say? Lose your life and you'll find it. That's what Paul is saying here. I don't count my life as valuable, except that I find my life in the life of Jesus, in the life of fulfilling His mission that He's given me. So if you're like, man, I want some fulfillment, get on board with following Jesus and go after what He's going after in the world, which is more people like you and I, and you will be more fulfilled than you could imagine. Paul knew that going to Jerusalem is going to involve suffering, but because... His value system had been flipped upside down by the kingdom of heaven, by Jesus. He valued Jesus above comfort, and even above his own life, he's willing to go. Right? What does he say elsewhere? Well, if I die, I just go to heaven. And if I stay here, I just keep completing my mission. So, I'm good either way. The goal of the Christian life, hear me, is not to have a long, comfortable life, The goal of the Christian life and what Jesus promised you is life to the full, which means life with him, whatever that leads. Life that's lived to the glory of Jesus. And Paul's example here is uh, showing us how we can endure the experiences of trials and difficulties that will come to us. We value Jesus above everything and we rely on the empowering presence of his Holy Spirit in us. That's how we do this life. Look at verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So what's with Paul talking about the blood of people, on blood on his hands, Right? Well, what does this have to do? Why is he innocent of the blood of his hearers? What's he getting at? Well, he's saying that he does not shrink, he never shrunk back from comprehensively declaring God's word to them. He talked about every realm of the human experience and how the gospel touches on that as he was with them and ministering with them. He preached the redemptive. Plan of God promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus, fulfilled in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Now, some scholars uh, believe that Paul is actually alluding to Ezekiel, the prophet's ministry here. Because God called Ezekiel to be a faithful watchman. And a watchman would what? Stand on the wall of the city and sound the alarm. And so God calls Ezekiel to be a watchman, to sound the alarm when he sees danger. And if those who heard the warning failed to heed the warning, they would have no one to blame for consequences except themselves. And Paul is alluding here that he is a watchman, warning people with the gospel, and if they don't want to listen, there's no blood on my hands. I told them the full thing. And so Paul could say that he... Faithfully sounded the alarm. He preached the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and so his conscience is clear. So here's the question for those of us in here who, like Paul, follow Jesus Have you been clear with your friends and your family and those inside of your influence about God's word to them? Have you been clear? Is your conscience able to say, I fully gave them every opportunity to respond to the Jesus? Can we say that we faithfully sounded the alarm? And you're like, what alarm? The alarm of the coming judgment. That alarm that we quoted in the Apostles' Creed a little while ago. That we don't want judgment for anyone. We want mercy for them. We want grace for them for them and so we sound that alarm in love. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had this to say on the idea of not holding back when it comes to sharing the gospel, not necessarily recommending you talk this way to people, but I love the sentiment in here for us who believe. If sinners must be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they must perish, let them perish with their with our arms wrapped around their knees. Imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. See what he's getting at? Let it never be that someone in our family, in our group of friends, among those with whom we have an audience, let it never be that they go unwarned and unprayed for about the realities of judgment it's interesting that Paul's life was his ministry Paul didn't punch the ministry clock in and out (laughs) ministry does not work like that he didn't view ministry as a career there's a great book by a good pastor named John Piper that's called Brothers We Are Not Professionals his ministry was his life's calling if you've ever wondered what the word vocation means it comes from that Latin word for calling or voice Ministry was his life's calling, and he fulfilled it as he was in Ephesus daily with them. He fulfilled it with humility, but also with passion, with faithfulness, and with courage, and he set the pace for the elders who would then build on his foundation. So now he's going to talk to the elders, and he's going to exhort them to watch their own lives as they watch over the flock. Now those of us... Who in this room are elders in this church right now. The three of us in this room who are the elders. um, I just want to encourage us right now to listen up. right? Pay extra attention right now. But also, those of you who in this room aspire to lead the church. Particularly the young men in this room who may aspire to lead in the church. I want you to listen up too right now. God used this text in my life in a moment just like this. Similarly, when my pastor was preaching and told me to pay attention to call me to the place that I find myself in right now. So pay attention if you've ever had any of that pull in your life. Male or female, single, married, I don't care. Listen to what Paul has to say about leadership in the church. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And these words, if you lead in the church, should make you shudder, which he obtained with his own blood. If you lead in the church, understand God bought it with his blood. So what we see here is that elders are not just chosen by the church, although we are. But they've been appointed by the Holy Spirit. And what's the call as a leader in the church? To watch your life and to watch the flock. Paul says, pay careful attention. So, for those of us that are elders, are we doing that? Right? That's the question. And paying careful attention means we are not passive in that, we are active. We take the initiative to ask, how are you doing? How is it going? This is so convicting for me this week as I read this because you can always be better at this as a pastor. How is it going with you? What can I pray for you about? This is the call. He says, pay careful attention. Those of you who aspire, maybe one day, maybe, man, I don't know, I feel like maybe God's asking me to help lead something. Are you paying careful attention to yourself and to this flock? The the call here is what? It's the call of living a godly life. If you ever want to understand the qualifications for leadership in the church, it's just Christian maturity. And then if you want to be an elder, one extra little thing, you've got to be able to teach. But other than that, it's just Christian maturity. The call is to live a godly life. Now hear me, not a life of sinless perfection, praise God, but a life that models Biblical confession and repentance and a desire to live above reproach so that as leaders, we can invite others into the life with Jesus that we ourselves are cultivating. That, that's what we look for. As I was thinking through this reality uh, this week, this the famous quote by John Owen popped into my head, be killing sin or it will be killing you. As leaders in the church, our call is to be, killing sin in our life, to be confessing and repenting and striving after holiness, which was purchased for us already in Jesus. Now, what we know from our own experience and from the Bible, and I want, I want us to hear this, is that killing sin is a communal reality. We cannot follow Jesus alone. If you're watching this online and you are following Jesus alone right now, let me just share the full counsel of God with you. You can't do it. You can't follow Jesus alone. That statement in our individualized, just me and Jesus, I'll ghost you if you ever call me out kind of world. And if you're like, what does ghost you mean? Don't worry about it. It's for the younger ones. (laughs) That might be one of the moments of declaring to you the full counsel. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself. You just can't. You might think you can, but you can't. We need the Holy Spirit. We need each other. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be accepting prayer from others for us. Some of us like to ask, how can I pray for you? But it bugs us when other people ask us, how can I pray for you back? That's pride. We need each other. We need to be praying for each other. And we need to be holding each other accountable. And we need to be held accountable. We definitely don't like that. Right? I didn't didn't say you'd necessarily always like community you for sure won't you for, some of you nodded right there Ooh. right but you need it you need community you need other people in your life no matter what your job is or what your role in the church is if you're a follower of jesus we must be killing sin and pursuing christ likeness and that happens in the community of faith verse 29 I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. What is admonish? He is begging you, please, follow Jesus. I'm trying to help you. That's what that word means means so Paul here uses this word picture of threats of there are wolves that are going to come in and why why is wolf an important word picture well because we're thought of as a flock right we're we're sheep and so wolves come in and they destroy a flock but he says what not only will wolves come in from outside but they're going to come in from among you from inside the church. This is why Paul is not only uh, emphasizing personal accountability, but here he's emphasizing sort of mutual communal accountability, right? This is why we don't just have one grand poohbah leader in the church. I've said some of this to you in conversation. I ain't the king. That's not how this works. And some of you are like, I know you're not the king, right? Leaders need to be held accountable. I can't tell you how many stories you hear Whenever we hear, and very recently there was a leader that was from our own denomination who fell, having continually sinned over and over and over, and what do we come to find out? He is not connected to a local body of believers anywhere. It's the same story over and over. Why? Because you need to walk into church on a Sunday and someone asks you, hey, what's been going on with, hey, what's up with this? We need that accountability. We need someone to ask us that question. And the community of faith is the place where that can happen. This is why we don't just have a grand leader in the church. Leaders need to be held accountable. Not for just how they live, but also for how we teach. We need to guard each other from error and from arrogance. And then the elder's job is to guard the flock also from abuse. Which means we have to guard it from ourselves sometimes. No one is above loving critique in the church. We don't have kings in here or queens. Paul also says, though, that the overseers needed to provide faithful and passionate teaching. That doesn't necessarily mean sermons, but it does mean teach you from the Bible and help you apply it. And that includes Teaching sound doctrine, but listen, it also includes rebuking, reproofing, correcting those who are contradicting or teaching false things in the church. That is part of the role of the elders. Now, that—that that is a part of being an elder that in our day and age really grinds against what we face in the church sometimes. And let me, can I just, I'm going to be honest with you for a little bit here. There is a constant unspoken tension and fear that I can feel... As an elder, as one of the elders here, as the pastor here, that if I do offer correction, the person who I offer that correction to is just going to leave and go somewhere where they don't have to face any of that. Now, where I need community, right, is that I need to deal with the reality that some of that fear is coming from my own unhealthy need for being liked and my own insecurities. I need to know that that's a reality and that Jesus is walking with me in that as I walk in community here and he continually gives me opportunities to feel that insecurity, thanks Jesus, right? So that I can be healed from it and slowly but surely setting me free from that over time. But... Some of that fear is based on my lived experience of trying to be a pastor in this culture. And this is particularly true for those of us who are younger. We need to know that. Well, those of you who are younger, I'm no longer in that category. But those of you who are under 35-ish, we, you, not we, ah man, you are more susceptible to this lie of our day that tells us, if it's uncomfortable and hear me. A lie that's being told to you right now is that anything that's uncomfortable is either trauma or it might be abuse. Now, don't hear me downplaying those things at all. I would invite you to examine the life that I live if you think that I don't think those are real things. I've given my life to kids who have dealt with that. So, come examine my life. But please listen to me. If you are younger, correction is not abuse. Abuse is abuse. Correction is for your good. And I love you, but you really are wrong sometimes. Right? You really don't know everything. You really actually know a lot less than you think you know. So please, if somebody older and wiser than you who you know loves you, and in particular one of the elders who you have a relationship with, hopefully, corrects you, Thank them that they care enough about you to actually do that. And I know the men who are elders here, and I'm looking out at all these faces in the room, and the elders that are here in this room with me, they love you. And I know they love you because they ask me questions about you in love to care for you and to pray for you. So if they come to you and they say, hey man, we're just, I just really want to talk to you about this. Understand, there is no part of us that wants to kick you out. We never want that. We want to pull you in tighter, actually, so you can be corrected and walk with Jesus in freedom. So, after this serious warning, Paul gives the elders this beautiful, wonderful word of assurance. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, he's reminding, remember, he's talking to the elders of a church. He's talking, actually, to the elders of an entire city of Christians. And so he's reminding them of the power of the gospel, which saves the lost, but also builds up believers. This is a great reminder here that God himself is the ultimate watchman, right? To use the shepherd language, Jesus is the shepherd. We are just under-shepherds. Now, we're not hired hands who are going to run at the first sign of trouble, but we're not ultimately in charge. God is the ultimate faithful protector of his church. So his promises, God's presence, the gospel of Jesus are going to bring much-needed comfort and encouragement and assurance to pastors and elders who read this, who I can guarantee you, especially when we read this text, we can feel the weight of the shepherding task that we have in our hands. Now you get the sense that Paul is wrapping up his speech here, but he's not actually quite finished. He wants to take up one more little important thing, the elders' relationship to material wealth. Uh Uh-oh, right? Now this is in the Bible for all of us, so that means that every Christian, not just pastors and elders, should pay attention to the theology that Paul is going to give here about uh, wealth and work. Look at what he says in verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So so his testimony here is consistent with what he says in other places regarding wealth and work. Paul avoided greed and even the accusation of greed. And he never used ministry as a means to cover it up. Paul never said, my wealth is evidence of God's blessing on me. didn't ever say it. So if you hear somebody saying that, just understand they're not in alignment with the man who wrote most of the New Testament. Or Jesus. The main point is that Paul did not want to get rich off of anyone at Ephesus... So again, be watchful. Do you see pastors trying to get rich off their congregation? Run. Instead, Paul wanted to meet people's needs. Ultimately, he wanted them to be rich with Jesus, with the gospel. But it's interesting that Paul also includes this little note about caring for the poor. There is always, always, always in the Bible from beginning to end from church history, from beginning till now, from Jewish history, from beginning till now, a very straight line between con- c- caring for the poor and following God. That is always there. Paul quotes the saying of Jesus, reminding the elders that their, their MO should be that they are givers, not takers. And it's also a great reminder that one experiences. A tremendous blessing when practicing generosity. But hear me, not necessarily monetary blessings. Probably not monetary blessings. When you practice generosity, you receive a greater gift, which is freedom from greed. Right? When you give something to someone else, God is loosening the grip of your sinful hands around that little bit of earthly wealth. And he's saying, you know what, let me help you remove that temptation for you. That's how we should view giving and generosity. It's God's grace to us. And Jesus himself modeled this, right? He gave his whole self in order to help us in our poorest, weakest condition. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the more we understand the grace of Jesus, the more generous we become with everything that we have. Whether that be money or possessions or time or anything else, we become as we follow Jesus. And so then Paul's going to kind of wrap it up in verses 36 to 38. It's going to connect to the narrative of his journey to Jerusalem. 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, we have to know this. Every Christian gospel goodbye is just to see you later. It's always just, see you later. But this doesn't take away the pain and the sorrow that comes from parting with loved ones. When people who have been part of our church family for a long time move away, we feel it. We know we'll see them again. Maybe not in this life, but we know we'll see them again. But we feel it. Even more so if the situation is like what Paul describes here, that you will not ever see each other's face on this side of glory again. And so the elders and Paul pray together. Everyone's crying. Everyone's hugging. I don't know if you've been in this kind of church meeting. I definitely have multiple times. I've been the person leaving. I've been the person seeing someone else leave. And it's, it's beautiful, but it's tough. And it's also encouraging and all the above. And they walk Paul to the ship. And this is the last time that Paul and the elders will ever see each other. His ministry, his personal ministry in Ephesus has ended And with that, he makes his way to Jerusalem, as he told them, knowing what's coming for him there. And so here's just a question for us. As we think about the end of a ministry with people, or maybe the end of a chapter of your life, whatever that means, do we have a desire in us, as Paul apparently does here, to finish well? Do we have a desire for gospel character, which will make us the kind of people who will leave everything out on the field as it were who will give everything that we have for the people that God has called us to whatever that looks like for some of us that's your kids right now for some of us that's your grandkids for some of us that's your neighbor your coworkers. whatever it is whatever the field is that God has called you in do you want to be able to say I have finished this well when that chapter closes let's pray Father in heaven, thank you for the lessons we can learn from uh, these interactions here. For those of us who are leading in this church right now, Father, would you uh, call us to holiness? Would you uh, encourage us in in a particular way? But for all of us, Jesus, would you help us to see that these calls are really for anyone who follows you? That leadership in your church is flipped on its head. It doesn't look like what it looks like to lead in the world. It looks like service and humility not power and influence. And so, Lord, for all of us, would you help us to, to chase after you, to, to live life in that godly character, to be the, become the kind of people through your power that can say to those around us, I never shrunk back from sharing God's word with you. And so we ask for opportunities to do that this week as we go out from here, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.